Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Before we get to Jared Wilson, let me tell you about Harbor 2018. And this is the 75th annual Pepperdine Bible Lectures, now known as Harbor. We have special sessions by Christine Kane, Rick Atchley, uh, Scott McKnight, Leonard Allen. Our man Brian Zahn is actually doing a prayer school at Harbor this year. So join me May 1st through May 4th in beautiful Malibu, California for the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. And don't forget me and Jonathan are doing our Christians Make the Best Atheist content. So come to one of our classes as well. Hope to see you there May 1st through May 4th, Harbor 2018. Now on to Jared C. Wilson, and I believe that C stands for Calvinist. Welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Kansas City, Mr. Jared C. Wilson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, brother. Well, I don't want to, like omit the C, because there are some other Jared Wilsons, yeah. and we want to specify which one you are. There's probably 43 Jared Wilsons, but there's at least one other that he and I get confused for each other all the time. He's a Christian author as well, and um, yes. so sometimes his stuff gets attributed to me, sometimes my stuff gets attributed to him, so I appreciate you throwing in that middle initial. It's good. Yeah, you, you got the C, but I, I was supposed to do something with him uh, a couple months ago. I was in Nashville, and we were trying to meet up, and it didn't work out. But I I feel like he should get the C because it seems like his jeans are skinnier than yours. <laughs> what? I feel like see like they're they're yeah. closer like they're more cut well, and so I don't know I'm just give him twenty maybe you wear skinnies these days I don't know I'm just saying it seems like his are much tighter than yeah, yours. Yeah, we'll give him twenty more years. I think I've got about that on. <laughs> you will, we'll see if he's still wearing the skinny jeans once he hits his forties. We'll find out. <laughs> Uh, I feel that. I feel that. I'm four away from 40, and I don't want to be wearing skinny jeans. Uh, slim fit, yeah. Okay, uh, now we have a living, breathing Calvinist on the, on the line today. Do we? I'm very excited about this. Yeah. You're, you're, like, you're, you write for like Gospel Coalition, or you're connected somehow. Oh, you're talking about me. I'm the Calvinist. Maybe. Yeah, you, yes, you're the Calvinist here. Yeah. You were predestined before the foundation of the universe to be a Calvinist, and so we yeah, don't want to take right. that away from you. No, that's good, and it's irrevocable and, and irresistible, <laughs> so you couldn't take it away from me. You know, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, it's limited. That's why only one of us on the conversation has it. That's correct. When you, you played at church for a while, was it an Acts 29 church? No, it was not. Um, yeah, my connection with, with Acts 29 is, is you, know, you know, sort of like the mafia where they say he's, He's one of ours, or he's a friend okay. of ours. It's that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Like I'm not one of theirs, but a friend of theirs. So I'm, you're okay. A friend <laughs> I've never of X29, but I'm affiliated, I suppose, and that I okay. interact with those guys. Interesting. My my closest uh, pastor friend when I was a church planner outside of Dallas was an 829 church planner, but I never got the designation friend of 829. Like <laughs> okay. I, I was a friend of someone in 829, but I didn't get like the, yeah. the t-shirt. Yeah, no, like, so I don't know what I need to do. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I've spoken at some of their events and, and that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, I get to go home and not worry about getting assessed or any, or, or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> the scrutiny's not there, I guess. You don't want Matt Chandler to come into your office and look through your books and make sure they're really Calvinist enough? No, no. Um, I, well, you know, that would be interesting. I think I probably have more books than Matt Chandler does, so he'd be... <laughs> you're like, oh, you're I'll you make... <laughs> I'll let you make fun of Matt Chandler. I'll pass on that okay. one. Um, mostly just because that's... M- many of the self-esteem issues I have all relate back to Matt Chandler and me following him. Oh, right. Preaching when I was in grad school. But that's all right. My therapist says it's good for me, and I'm moving forward, yeah. so... 
I'm glad you made fun of him <laughs> instead of me. You know, a friend of mine, uh, Steve Besner, do you know him? He's a pastor in Houston. He was Chandler's roommate in college. And he wrote a little article that we published. Um, I hit up a website called For the Church, and he wrote a little article. I saw that. Yeah, it was basically about what it was like to be Matt Chandler's roommate. Yes, I remember that. And, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it was a great piece. It did really well for us. And he got Chandler's oh, yeah. know, approval on it because, you know, of course. you always have to get assessed if you're, if you're connected with at <laughs> <laughs> My My favorite memory is... We did a reunion, like, for the previous speakers, and so Matt came back, and a guy named Steve Harden, who I think works at the Village now, okay. uh, they came back, and then I was there, and the next week, someone showed up, and I'm at the back of the room, like, before Sanctuary, it was a Baptist church, back of the Sanctuary, and I have, like, the microphone on my face, and so I'm clearly, like, this is a guy who's going to be on stage, and someone walks up and goes, is Matt Chandler going to be preaching this week? <laughs> and I go... Sorry, no, he's not. And they turn and walk out. I'm like, but I'm here. Oh, I'm my good. word. Oh, man. Come on. Come on, man. That hurts. That's anyway, but, but, okay, but you are a living, breathing Calvinist. And so there, there's a scale that I've developed, and I don't know how accurate it is, but maybe you can tell me if it is. Good. Like, there's some Calvinists who are like, you know, um, I say all things happen for God's purpose like when someone breaks up to me when I'm in college. Like, there's that level of Calvinist. Okay. And then the next level is like, my wife made me go to this church because I didn't want to go to church. And it turns out the pastor wears like a skull shirt that has like a skull, like body slamming someone and the pastor drinks beer. Okay. And there's that level because they didn't realize it was an Acts 29 church. And then the third level is I have a child named Spurgeon. <laughs> where, where do you think you would fit on that scale? That's really fascinating. It doesn't seem like a spectrum though. Um, I <laughs> probably... The first one you said, maybe? I'm not sure. Like like you would say, like if someone said, hey, my boyfriend broke up with me, you would say, well, God has a reason for this. Oh, no, I wouldn't every, say that's every, very unpastoral. I wouldn't say that. Okay, I, I'm just like, that's entry-level Calvinist. I'm not like, saying would you top it? shelf. Like, yeah, I would keep that to myself. I, I would believe <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's not. that's not a very uh, winsome okay. way to counsel somebody. You would just say, oh, no. oh, I'm sorry, that's terrible. You know, that's what See, that's a good response. Yeah. Okay, what... I, Okay, I've got a game for us to play. Oh, no. And, and we're, I'm going to throw out like a, an either or, and then the count of three, you and I both at the same time pick our response. And so it's going to be a choice of one thing or the other. Okay. On the count of three, both of us, so it's not just you, it's both of us are on the hot seat together. Okay. Okay, so the first one is, if you had to pick one theologian, would you pick John Piper or N.T. Wright? On the count of three, <laughs> one, two, three. Piper. Tom Wright. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, this next one, I feel like we might get closer. Hey, hey, before you go on, let's come back to that first one when we're all done, because I have an interesting thing to share with you about Piper Wright. Okay, okay well, let's just hear it right now. Let's hear, it right, hear now. it right now. So yeah. those two figures were probably the most formative influences on me, right, right into college, post-college okay. uh, era, and um, I really love Wright's historical Jesus stuff. is hugely mm -hmm. uh, influential on me. Um, and my very first book, which is called Your Jesus is Too Safe, those are the two most quoted uh, writers in that book, Piper and Wright. And mm -hmm. it was my way of sort of, I mean, I know about the debate and all that sort of thing, uh, yeah. but trying to sort of find a harmony between their approach to Jesus, which I find quite complementary, mm -hmm. in fact. Uh, Wright as a historian in particular, um, and, and Piper 
uh, not, I mean, I guess as a theologian, but really as a, as a preacher or sort of as yep. an Edwardsian you know, kind of thinker, that sort of thing. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's usually the over Paul that Piper and Wright right. are going to disagree. No, you're, a lot you're of, right. a, a lot of Calvinists seems to re- appreciate Wright's work on Jesus. So that, yeah. yeah, Paul seems to be where they get a little divergent there. Yeah. Okay. Can we go back to the game? Yeah, let's go. Let's. Okay. The second one. Okay. Speaking of Piper. You got two options. The first one is farewell, Rob Bell, or oh, hello, Rob Bell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one, two, three. Farewell, hello, Rob. Rob. Bell. <sighs> okay, I see where All this right. is going. This is interesting. Okay, okay, like I I'm, got. I'm, I'm I'm wading deeper into quicksand, is what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, this next one. I feel like we can find. I feel like we can find harmony on this one. Okay, okay you ready okay. for this one? Yeah. Stephen Furtick. Oh no! Okay. If you have to have. One year of Stephen Furtick's training. You can either pick his theological training or his weight training. Which one would you pick for a year? Theological training or weight training? One, two, three, weight, weight training. training. Yeah. Yes, we found one. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't want either one because he doesn't look natural, bro. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a fitness expert. I would <laughs> Anyone who looks at me would know that. But there's something that doesn't look right. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> As someone who's um, started working out when I was in high school and stayed with it for up until now, the amount of gains that he has had in a short period of time is something that I haven't seen very consistently in the weight room. I'll just put it that oh, way. Yeah, the awesome. guy has made some gains. That's gains. what I'm saying. Lot, yeah. Lots of gains. He's doing, he's doing something. Yeah, something's elevated. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay. I, I think he's just taking a lot of protein. Okay. okay. Yeah. Let's let's talk about so so you're not really part of A29 but that doesn't mean you're not a Calvinist. That's true. They're not mutually exclusive exclusive right. anymore. Right. And there are A29 guys who aren't Calvinists uh, <gasps> which is really interesting, yeah. You know I I've had a great deal of respect uh, for A29 based on my friends who are connected with it just the way that you've created not you but they have created a network and people can rely upon each other and have community because a lot of times church planners feel very isolated. Yeah. And they've done a great job with that. Well, and it's a network that's growing up as well. I mean, obviously had some serious issues in the leadership, um, mm-hmm. and it's gone through some growing pains. And I mean, I, I was there when there was not in the network, but I, I was speaking at an event where there was a lot of angst going on, mm-hmm. um, you know, related to Driscoll and that sort of thing. Where I mean, the guys in the trenches are some of the sweetest, most faithful, you know, helpful guys, and I think even they felt like our public image doesn't really even reflect what we are or at least what we want to be. Yeah. And so I think there's been some settling down and some maturing that has really helped in, in the last you know, few years. Yeah. It, it seems that there obviously have been a few people uh, that have kind of blown up their lives and their ministries. And I've heard some people say, well, that that's a reflection of like a dysfunctional organization when you have these, uh, you know, alpha dogs who are blowing up their careers and blowing up their ministries. But I feel like the level of, you know, major moral or career failures is just consistent in this group as it is as the rest of Christianity. I don't think it's just because you have a few guys who are very prominent who've gone through that. I don't think that's yeah anymore than right. Do you think that's a fair read? Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, sinners are sinners. I mean, any place sinners are involved, there's the potential. I would say, and and, and not to attack a two nine or anything like that, but there were dysfunctional there was a dysfunctional, um, at least at Mars Hill, um, that yeah. because 829 was housed or, or run out of Mars Hill probably had impact as well. 
there yeah. was very much a dysfunctional leadership culture there, which isn't, you know, particular even to A29, but that kind of with domineering, um, you know, very sort of yeah. um, circle the wagons, um, even the toxic masculinity stuff, um, w wherever we find that, I think is um, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. You can divorce the toxic masculinity, like the almost like the posturing and the like, I don't say overcompensating, but it comes across that way. And while I might not be a complementarian, I can still say that there are complementarians who would not fall into that sort of unhealthy masculinity, which I think in a lot of ways Driscoll espoused probably the most strongly. Yeah, I think there's extremes with any with any viewpoint. And so to mm -hmm. define um, you know, any one group based on its its most extreme examples or its abuses is always unfair. The the trick is those who are inside the particular viewpoints, um, sort of self-reflecting, self-convicting, um, you know, self self-policing, as much as we look outside and, and point the fingers at the group across the way. Um, not that there's not a place for, you know, you know prophetic stances or, or confronting or what have you, those of opposite views, but to be able to become, I think, a healthy movement, there has to be a, a, at least as much internally uh, accountability and and a good sort of prophetic exhortation within the camp as well. Yeah. Speaking of the gender stuff, Piper recently put out a uh, blog post about why there shouldn't be women teaching in seminaries. I don't know if I 100% got that correctly, but that's my understanding of it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, I, it, in my mind, Twitter doesn't do a great job of nuancing yeah. Um, I mean, it's just not a nuanced deal. But when you read the post itself, I, I it to me, I so I don't agree with the extent that um, of Piper's view, and yet some of the responses seem to misread. I think even what he was saying. Um, but like for me personally, I, I I don't see I don't equate seminary professor with I am a complementarian, so I believe that um, mm -hmm. you know male only eldership, and yet. That's what I believe. That's what the Bible, you know. That's what I see the Bible teaching. The Bible doesn't say anything about seminary prompts or, um, you know, even extrapolating that out. So, like to to me, we have to be really careful with applying uh, a, a clear biblical or what I see as a clear biblical teaching out into an implication or application that the Bible doesn't say anything about. And that's where I think some of the problem arises is yeah. using principles rather than clear teaching. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I, I work at a seminary. I need to be careful about, you know, the rules here and that sort of thing because what I've learned through some of this conversation is that different schools have different, you know, strictures applied to them um, based on their, you know, foundational documents, bylaws, yeah. and, you know, denominational, you know, viewpoints and that sort of thing. Um, but I remember a few years ago there was something where he answered the question about can women or can, should pastors read commentaries written by women? And it was this long, complicated thing. And I think I even blogged on it. And I said, the answer should have just been yes. I, you know, what? <laughs> what is, is, reading a book is not the same thing as having pastoral authority. Um, even if it's a male, you know, you know, I don't presume when I'm reading a book written by a man that he has pastoral authority over me. So why would I assume that if a woman wrote, yeah. if she's, you know, um, my favorite book from last year was Fleming Rutledge's Crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't agree with her on, on you know, um, uh, you know, gender roles in, in the church, and yet it was so helpful. It was brilliant. 
It was mm-hmm. theologically strong. It was artful. Um, I loved reading that, and I learned a lot. Okay, so tell me about the process of you reading Rutledge, and obviously there's things that you have differences of opinion on, mm-hmm. very varying language you might want to use for that, but you're still able to value and appreciate her work, whereas some people just go, no, like in my camp, that's Piper. He has nothing good to say. And others would say, oh, that's whoever. They have, they have nothing to contribute for me. Like, how are you able to wade past that? <laughs> it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we don't do that with anybody, even in, in real life. We disagree with our friends. We disagree with our spouses. We do, and, and we're able to say, I love you. Um, I agree with the things that you say that I agree with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, or we're just human beings trying to do yeah. this world together. I, I don't see why we can't read a book. Um, I mean, I think there is such a thing as people whose viewpoints, you know, would be, you know, that we would categorize as unhelpful or even dangerous. And we might say, you know what, um, I, you know, I can't, uh, there's not enough in that to affirm, so I can't recommend it. But yeah. with everything else, you know, we, you know, you mentioned right earlier. Yeah. You know, I don't agree with his views on justification. And yet what am I robbing myself of not to read his very thoughtful, um, you know, super helpful work and not take what I see as good out of it and not be helped by it. I hope people do that with me, you know, that they would say, you know, I don't agree with Jared on Calvinism or what have you. And yet he always points to Jesus. And I mean, that's what, you know, what I want people to take away from me is not that you ought to be reformed or what have you, or even complementarian, but that you take away, um, you know, that Jesus is all satisfying. Yeah. It seems like there's two parts that, like, when the main thing is we're all pointing to Jesus, there's a, a playing field that, okay, we're all in the same field. We can interact with one another. And I think the second part, like, when you have confidence and a sense of an awareness of who you are and where you come from and your theological undergirding, y- you aren't as likely to get knocked off just because you read one book. And right. one person's comment isn't going to destroy your faith or destroy your opinions of faith if you really know who you are. And I feel like a lot of people just act very insecure when it comes to their the- theology and conversation. Well, yeah, and, and it even makes disagreements sort of um, really strange. And, uh, you know, there's a, a um, an opaqueness to them because how can you disagree with someone effectively if you've not actually even read what they've said, if you haven't interacted with what they've said? And maybe you, you reject the whole thing, but at least do so based on having read, you know, what they've written or studied, you know, what they've said. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, well, speaking of rejecting things, let's talk about your new book. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. What are we rejecting? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Low, okay. Low sales, I hope. <laughs> exactly. You got, uh, what, two daughters? Is that right? I do. I have two daughters. We got to get those girls into college. So let's, uh, let's, buy, the, let's buy this book. Brother, got... from your lips to God's ears. That's good. Exactly. That's what I'm here for. Um, Okay, so you write a book on the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you do say early on that you're not a charismatic, and I don't think you use this exact language, but the way it came across to me was you said, I'm not a charismatic except for one time in college. So it sounds <laughs> like you have like your little experimentation I, at a I, camp I at Estes Park. I see what you're doing here, Luke. That, <laughs> I'm not biting on that. <laughs> no, okay, no biting. Um, <laughs> so you have one experience, but that's... You want me to, yeah. No, you don't have to tell the story. Well, but, it, it's interesting because it's just, you know, I saw it as sort of a minor, I mean, I know that's interesting, I guess, in retrospect, but I felt like I, I had to put it out there just as a way of saying this thing happened to me. I don't, I can't really explain it. 
but I do believe that it was something that, you know, that God did. And I, you know, it's not a major part of the book. I don't orient a chapter around it or no. anything, but you're probably the third, interv- you know, interviewer that's asked me about it. So I see that it's a <laughs> you know, really curious thing. Well, the reason I brought it up is one is because that was my experience as well. Like I oh, had okay. had a, honestly, it was at a, like a mentoring disciple group that Chandler was putting on at his house. It was like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. He had a couple guys together. And the church he was a part of, Beltway Park in, uh, in Abilene at the time, was like, it's kind of Baptist-y, kind of charismatic-y, like influenced by um, Jack Deere, surprised by the oh. power of the Holy... That guy? Yep, yep. He, um, I don't know if that's fair to say. I, I think it is. But they... Uh, anyway, so he had like this charismatic thing going on. Not... He was reading this guy's work and talking about it. I mean, I don't want to yeah. misquote. <laughs> but I had a charismatic experience of like this divine word that about someone I didn't know anything of, and I had no idea how I could think about that. And I haven't had anything similar to that since then. And yeah. so in the same way that you had this experience, and a couple decades later, that's not part of your normal Christian no. interaction, right? No? Yeah, no. And it was interesting, too, because the church that I was a part of at that time, I was in student ministry, uh, was not kind of charismatic at all. In fact, would would have been very suspicious of that whole idea, concept. Um, also suspicious of Calvinism, by the way. So it, it kind of tells you... Um, they said have I've, at least one thing going for them, you know? Yeah, I've, I've, I've made a few leaps <laughs> since then. Um, Wait, you hold up. a few leaps from them. You but, were yeah, Calvinist in college? Um, it was sort of the end of college, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and that stuck. Interesting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this experience, so I was in student ministry, it was a youth camp, um, there was one night, uh, in the worship service, um, the guy leading the service, who was a guest preacher, he himself was not, um, you know, charismatic in that sense, and, but there was, uh, a couple songs, it was, it was during an invitation time, um, you know, typical Baptist youth camp, uh-huh. you know, come forward, you've been making out with your girlfriend, you need to get saved, <laughs> all that kind of thing, so come forward, but something was happening, um, in a surprising way. And it kind of like, I'm a big fan of, of, um, of, you know, Jonathan Edwards, at least in, in the historical stuff where he was like, look, we weren't looking for this. It showed up. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's called a surprising move of the work of God. And, and something started happening, like, and it was happening widespread among the people. And I felt so affected and I felt I needed to remove myself from you know from the proceedings so I'm, I'm like walking out the back so no one can see me no one saw this as far as i know and i was there was sort of like a, a foyer or like a double door ish you know thing to get outside and in between those two doors it i got knocked out i mean there's like this power or you know forcefully i was you know knocked onto the floor and i was overcome with a feeling of joy and peace um, that was really strange. And I went outside when I was able to get up and, um, was just praying and, and thanking God. And some students started trickling out as well. They had been experiencing something really extraordinary. One felt in particular came up to me and just said, what is happening? I mean, there was like something really heavy. It was like, uh, I don't like the phrase God showed up. Um, but when yeah. people, because usually people, are, you know, they mean I got goosebumps during the song or whatever. Um, During the key change, usually. Exactly, that's right. You modulate, and, and the Holy Spirit comes down. Yeah, that's how it works. That's just math. But that would be one of those times where it's like it was like the Lord revealed Himself in a really different way, and yet, 
I've never had an experience like that. I mean, I've had emotional worship, you know, experiences mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, but I've never experienced anything like that. Never spoken in tongues, never had anything else that I would equate to as a charismatic, um, couple of times, something that would approximate words of knowledge, but not like I operate in that gift or, or anything like that. Yeah. And, and that would be my experience as well. Like nothing since then, uh, like I left a Hillsong show and my ears are ringing really, really. And I <laughs> yeah. feel like that might be Holy Spirit. I'm not sure, but that's probably the closest thing. No, <laughs> That's tinnitus. Okay. Okay. That's whatever that is. Yeah. Um, okay. So in your book, you talk about how there are no like miracles today. And people ask the question, well, if, if that happened to you one time, how come it's not consistently happening? Or how come we don't have the miracles that we read about in scripture happening consistently anymore? And I kind of like your answer for it. Like I'm, I'm on board with what you said that, uh, you don't need to know. Like, just kind of give them the, eh, just, you don't need to know. Like, I like, can, yeah. can we do that? Just say, yeah, you don't really need to know. Well, I don't know that we can know. And, and I'm, I don't agree that there are no miracles today, even, even like the kind that we see in the New Testament, especially. Okay, that's we, fair. Yeah. Like we see a shift, don't we, between the Old Testament and the New, I mean, there are some pretty extraordinary things in the New Testament, but those healings seem to be more on a personal interrelational level than they are in the Old Testament. And so even then we see something sort of happening. Um, you know, I was just actually talking with a fellow who stopped by my office a, a couple hours ago about this issue. Um, he's a cessationist. Um, you know, he believes the, what we call the charismatic gifts have ceased and, or the sign gifts have ceased. And he said, you know, we just don't see it. I've never met anybody who's ever seen these things. And I was just sharing with him that, you know, the, the people that I have met in my ministry who I think operate in what we would call charismatic gifts tend to be very private about it. They were very modest about it. They um, participated in functionally cessationist churches. And what would we think of them if they were posting YouTube videos <laughs> of, yeah. of these things? We would just characterize them the same as we do, you know, all of the kooks and, and weirdos. And so just the fact that they don't line up with the kooks and weirdos doesn't mean that they're not out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but still the answer of, uh, so obviously there are things that are happening right now. I had a, a roommate in college who would speak in tongues, and I have no interest in like devaluing or saying that isn't a real genuine spiritual experience. I have no interest in doing that. Uh, but it's not. Uh, it doesn't look like the Book of Acts in most churches on a Sunday right. morning. And the sense that we have like this sense of entitlement, like I'm supposed to get this answer to explain fully why, is not something that's really on the table. And you make the point that miracles don't always instill faith. Like the magicians of Pharaoh were able to do some amazing things, and demons can do some amazing things. And while John's gospel says we wrote these miracles down so that you would have faith, it doesn't always sustain faith in the way that maybe I think it should. Right. And yeah, that's exactly right. And there's even some direct teaching from Jesus, um, or at least implicitly, if, you know, for instance, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where, you know, you've got the rich guy in the afterlife in, in the, you know, the torture, the pain of, of judgment. And he's asking for someone to go back from the dead. Let there be a resurrection from the dead, a miraculous appearing mm-hmm. of someone to basically witness to my family. I'm, I'm kind of summarizing here. Yeah. And Abraham says, even if someone were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Let them read the law and the prophets. Basically, I mean, it's kind of like saying the, you know, the scriptures testify to Christ. It's, you know, an explanation of the sufficiency of scripture, which I do affirm. And basically saying, like, if they don't believe the word, 
they're not going to believe because of a miracle. And, and I'm utterly convinced of that as well, that, you know, people especially who say, well, I would believe if God would kind of come down and do something spectacular. Um, my hunch is, no, they wouldn't. They would find another explanation or for another reason, um, you know, for that to happen. It was a bad burrito or something. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But they would find an excuse where Jesus even says to Thomas, Thomas asked to see the wounds and as far as we can tell, Jesus in his mercy, you know, shows him or lets him touch, but says, you know, do you believe now that you've seen? Well, blessed are those who believe without seeing, which, you know, tells us we don't need a miracle beyond the gospel. The gospel is the biggest miracle that there could be. And um, if God in his grace wants to give us more miracles, that's wonderful. We can pray for people's healing, you know, all sorts of things. But the miracle of the gospel is sufficient for us to have eternal life. So yeah. that, to me, is sort of the emphasis of the miracle. Yeah, and even the story of Scripture is that people see the miracles, and they still doubt. I mean, there's a story in, exactly. in John of, like, there's a voice of God saying, yes, I've glorified my name, and I'll do it again. And some people said it's a voice of angels, and others goes, eh, that was just thunder. That's just thunder. Right. And, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to give us the answer that many of us are looking for. Or even John 6, right? Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Pretty good. But by the I've end never of the done chapter, they, I mean, they've all walked away because he started preaching and, and he, he's preaching himself mm-hmm. and they found it so offensive that they left. So, I mean, there you have at least, you know, you got a mega church that's turning their back on Jesus um, because of the sermon, right? They were there for the buffet, but then the buffet, you know, he started preaching and they were gone, which reminds me of student ministry days <laughs> where you get them in the room with pizza and then some guy, some sad sap stands up. Hey, guys, I just want to talk to you about Jesus. And they're, just and they're finding their way out the door. They, you know? they want the uh, testimony from the guy who played in double-A baseball for a couple years and That's how right. God used him in baseball. That's what they want. They don't want that. <laughs> open up your right. Bibles to Luke chapter 2 or whatever. Um, okay, one of the things you talked about in the book that I've always wrestled with is this idea of living in God's strength versus living in my strength. And I know, you know, Paul's saying about powers made perfect in weakness. And I, I really, like, I, I found in my life in times of weakness, and times of defeat and loss, that I feel God most prevalent and I'm most aware of the presence of God in those moments somehow compared to when things are going the way I want them. But how do you... So in your book, you have this character, Bill, who's this like ongoing guy who's kind of lives this... Um, like an office space kind of life. Is yeah, that, exa- yeah that, that's exactly right. Yeah, he's office space. Like, I do this monotonous job, and I come home, and I watch TV, and I go to sleep, and that's what I do every day. But you give him some life hacks about how to live into the spirit and like to live this life. And it's read your Bible more, go to church, watch TV less, listen to sermons. Obviously that's a simplification of it, but you give him like these spiritual practices to participate in. And then he will have this like more awareness of of God and and have the spirit. But if we're talking about like not living in God's strength, but or not living in my strength, but God's strength, it's kind of like the prescription is, you display more self-control and make better choices, like godly choices, and then you'll experience God. So how do you balance that tension of you experience God more in your defeat, but the way that you experience God more is that you have the strength to practice spiritual disciplines? You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely hear what you're saying. Um, you know, and I even liked your you know, simplistic um, explanation of like, you know, listen to more, I don't think I said listen to more sermons, but yeah, you, you're you're opening your ears more to the Word of God, and you're spending more time in prayer. And the, the reason why I, I, you know, for lack of a better word, prescribe those um, 
is because those put us in a place of submission mm -hmm. to, you know, to God. So prayer is essentially expressed helplessness, which is what is happening in our moments of suffering and hardship where we feel a more pronounced closeness to God uh, or often do. I mean, some people don't, um, you know, they feel far from God in those moments. But a lot of times people who are, who are struggling, suffering, um, you know, and the Lord has come through or they just have a closeness, they're listening more. Um, it's not that we enter this like period of, of, of you know, becoming, you know, um, embracing a martyr's complex or, any, mm -hmm. or anything like that, or just constantly throwing pity parties. But if that dynamic is my weakness, God's strength, how do we tap into um, our weakness on a daily basis, right? So you don't have to enter into suffering willingly or that sort of thing. But I can put myself in a position, adopt a posture of submission mm. to God. The reason why study your Bible more and pray more have gotten a bad rap is not because there's anything wrong with those things, but because for so long we've discipled people according to sort of a legalistic yeah. um, you know, adoption of them. Basically, you do these things and God will love you more, or do these things and you'll earn credit, or do these things and you'll become a better person, or whatever it is. And, and that's what I want to eschew. Um, in fact, I, I, I talk about some of that in my last book, but what we are doing in those, um, you know, positions or postures is basically getting ourselves m more out of the equation. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, that every Christian has um, as much of God as they need for eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that we need more of God, like there's super Christians and then the regular Christians or that sort of thing. Everyone who's justified is justified. Everyone who's united to Christ is united to Christ. So we all have equal access there. And yet there's this concept of quenching the spirit and it's not because we have less of the spirit i think it's because we have too much of us yeah. and so that's the emphasis for me on bible study and prayer is getting ourselves out of the way um so yeah practicing the spiritual disciplines you have the spiritual energy to do that but it's not about like suddenly like leveling up you know you don't become spiritually for in and in your um in your christian life did you, did you, did you say for i did <laughs> Let's coin it right now for Tikian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. It, That's so good. It's really about spiritually embracing weakness, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, I like the depiction of those spiritual practices as submission. Like I'm less of me, more of Jesus, that kind of John 3 thing. Uh, when you pray, yeah, I guess in, <clears throat> in Scripture, you're being you're becoming a student. You're letting Scripture examine you. You're not examining Scripture. That sort of posture of... Yeah. These practices are not about me doing the good thing so that God would love me or that so I can be religious, but I'm giving myself away. And in doing so, you become, you participate, you, you reference Second um, Peter 1 about uh, partaking in the divine nature, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Side note, it reminded me of a book uh, called The Divine Dance by Richard Rohr. I didn't see that in your yeah. bibliography for some reason, but he no. referenced that well, same idea. Reason. Huh? I said, there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> but he talked about, like, there's this thing called Rublev's icon where there's, like, this, um, there's a representation of, like, the Trinity, and there's an open spot where we get to jump in and join, like, this divine dance. You weren't referencing Richard Rohr there, though, I'm assuming. No, no. And, in fact, um, yeah, I think to partake of the divine nature is not, like, to participate, or it's not to partake of God's godness. Like, we don't become godded no. with God, as Edwards would say. But we get to partake of um, his goodness and his love mm -hmm. and his grace and his justice and 
all of the things that sort of make up his nature, we get to partake of, which mm-hmm. to me is, is, you know, wonderful enough. I don't need to be God to enjoy those how, things. How many times do I need to compare your book to something Richard Rohr wrote until you're kicked out <laughs> of the Gospel Coalition? Is it like two? Yeah, probably once would do it. I'm not, I won't. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, somebody the other day said, hey, once you're in TGC, you're always in. And I was like, are you kidding me? Have you seen this? <laughs> but that would be very Calvinist of y'all. Like, if you're in, you're in. Like, you can't get out. Something right. about the saints, yeah, perseverance right, of the saints, that that's not TGC? No, it's not. That's not perseverance of the coalitioners for sure. So you Maybe you never really were coalitioners. That's the problem. Ah, that's that's what it is. You found the loophole. It you is found it. okay. So we don't want to do the comparison to Roar. So I'll uh, I'll stop right there. Um, let's talk about silence. So you talk okay. about silence in the book, and you tell the story. Mother Teresa not aware of the presence of the love of God. Um, you, you reference, uh, I, I guess, Job, and I think one of the Psalms as well. Like this this experience of seems like God's not there. Uh, I don't hear anything. And I'm assuming you've had plenty of people over your years of ministry and, and, and different roles that you've been in where people have said, hey, how come I don't hear God anymore? And what's your typical response to that? Yeah, first of all, to validate the experience, which I think is sort of um, the value. Um, it's not the only value, but one of the values of the Psalms is that the you know, the human experience is there, right? Mm-hmm. John Calvin says the Psalms are the anatomy of a soul. So there's almost mm-hmm. no human feeling or experience that isn't. Um, and when I say validated, just sort of like you see it there, therefore you're not alien, you're not, you're not abnormal. Yeah, you know, so I mean, that's the first thing, you, you know, just as a pastor, if someone's coming in just under this weight of God's not talking to me or I feel like I'm getting the silent mm-hmm. treatment, um, is not to say, well, you must be a bad Christian. <laughs> uh, you're so good at this pastor say, thing. Right, right. <laughs> but to say, you know what, uh, King David and the psalmist had that same experience. It's it's part of living in a broken world. It's part of being in a world where the where the disconnect between what we think of as reality and the spiritual plane is always in front of us. And and so you're not a bad Christian because you experience that. Um, it's not because of sin in your life that you're experiencing that. Um, it's just part of being human and living in a broken place. And yet, to take it a step further, like what I'm hearing is people saying, I want to hear from God, right? They're not yeah. saying, I'm done with the whole deal. The whole reason they're you know, talking to me about it is because they want to hear his voice. And one thing that I try to do as, you know, as gently and patiently as I can is explain that God speaks primarily through his word. I mean, his Bible is where we hear the voice of God. If the Holy Spirit really has breathed out those words, has inspired those words, then he's talking to us every time we open the book. And what people are usually saying is, I don't feel a certain thing or feel a certain way. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever heard an audible voice uh, of God. At least I don't think I have. Um, Does Morgan Freeman so count? Usually not... Morgan Who? Freeman? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, no, okay. it doesn't count. Uh, or George Burns or anybody like that. Just asking. Uh, Okay, so no audible voice. Yeah, Yeah, so usually they're not saying, you know, know, God used to talk to me audibly, and now he doesn't. What they're saying is, I don't feel close to him, or there's a particular leading of some kind that I used to experience, or I have experienced, and I don't feel that anymore. It's usually a a sensation, experience, a feeling. And what I try to say is, uh, I do believe that the Lord speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, outside of the scriptures. He convicts us, comforts us, counsels us. 
Um, but the primary way he speaks is through the scriptures. And until, so just speaking for me personally, and I have been in, in, in situations and circumstances for extended periods of time where I have felt utterly overcome by suffering and um, anxiety and that sort of thing. But for me personally, I find it difficult to say, God, you're, you know, you're being silent to me if I'm not in his word. I may not feel affected in a particular way. And yet, as long as I have that book, until I've mastered that book, which, you know, I don't know how long it would take me to do that. Um, it, it just feels unjust or unfair to say to God, you're not talking to me when I'm actually, I'm, I'm not listening to the primary way he's yeah. speaking. The majority of my spiritual formation has come through the spiritual discipline of I would say the majority. A large chunk of my spiritual formation has come from the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. And it's what I think converted me. I started reading my Bible every day when I was 16, and it just changed who I was. And that's a spiritual discipline that has such a great uh, connection to me, just the way I'm wired and all that. Um, but what about like the first 1,500 years of Christianity where people didn't have access to their individual Bible until like the Reformers came around and the Protestant Re uh, Reformation where... Solo scripture was happening because people had experienced the benefit of the printing press. How, if you got in a time machine, I don't know if you have one or not in Kansas City, but if you got one and you went back five or six hundred years ago when people weren't able to have their own Bible, how, how would you interact with that same question? Well, you're really looking at a different, I mean, depending on the time frame, it's really a different culture, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we live in a very individualistic age. Um, and to some extent, I mean, I'm, I'm not a historian or historical sociologist. Um, the time of the Protestant Reformation might have even fed, you know, some of that individualism, um, getting a Bible into everybody's Agreed. hands, um, maybe had this unintended mm -hmm. effect. So if I were to go back in time, yeah, you, you know, you didn't go into somebody's house and they had, you know, a bound Bible on their coffee table. Um, it was very rare for it to be, you know, um, you know, compiled that way. Um, but it was much more of a communal familial culture as well. And so you could hear from the scriptures. Um, either through the oral tradition yep. or you're gathering for worship and somebody's reading, mm -hmm. right? Somebody's reading from the copy that is in that town or in that area or, or what have you, yep. um, which, is, which is not to under, you know, understate um, really the, you know, the riches that we have today mm -hmm. that we even have the problem. Yep. <laughs> we have the Bible in so many different languages and formats mm -hmm. and yet still feel disconnected. Doesn't that say something? Yep. Yeah, it really does. So a second ago, you said that silence isn't because of sin. Like it's uh, when you were just talking, there's a quote in your book that you say, sin cuts the telephone wires. This is part of God's judgment on sin, but the responsibility still falls on us. Are you defining that as like big sin, like the, the power and principality, not like my individual choice? Is that how you're differentiating yeah, no, that? Well, yeah, I, I think I'm speaking to, to um, unbelief or... Um, what happened at the fall, mm -hmm. right? Which would actually tie to both of those things. I, I don't disconnect the, you know, the cosmic level mm -hmm. of the gospel from the individual personal level. I think they're both in play there. So, um, so what I mean is when someone is saying, you know, I don't, I'm not hearing from God, I'm assuming they're a believer. I mean, that's the scenario. Yeah. And, and I would say your sin isn't disconnecting you from God. In fact, you are hidden with Christ mm -hmm. in God um, as someone justified, um, you know, in him. So, um, your sin, like if you, you know, we sin every day and God doesn't throw us away, but before belief, yeah. So, um, our sin disconnects us from God and it disconnects really the world from God. So I think yes, on both of those levels, 
but I was speaking to sort of pre, you know, pre-faith. Yeah. So like the big category of, of sin. I, tell me what you mean the difference. I, I feel like I missed something. The, okay. You, you differentiate the two different types of, of sin there. Like you're saying, how do I even, I need to play back the tape here. <laughs> I'm saying the big category of sin, like the very thing that all humanity is plagued with and that Jesus overcame in death, like that. But there's also a personal sin, like, and I thought you were saying it's not your personal sin. Just because you slipped and said a word that you shouldn't have said at your cat this morning didn't mean that God's not going to answer your prayer. Right. Ex- yes. That's what, yes. I agree with that. That's okay. what I'm saying. Though I feel like if you curse at a cat, that's probably not a sin because cats deserve it. Oh, yeah, they're asking yeah, for they're, it. Really. Okay. Um, so you know, uh, Rob Bell's on a tour. Are you going to see his new show? <laughs> what? What is he? Is, is he juggling now? What's the show? <laughs> no, no. That's what it is. I don't know what it's. Yeah, I mean, you said it. You said, "Are you seeing yeah, his the show?" show? <laughs> yeah. I might see a show. I see all okay. kinds of shows. Yeah, it depends yeah, on what he's know. doing. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I almost went to see Osteen actually um, three weeks ago. I, I have a buddy who who travels with Osteen, if you can believe that, and he's going to get me tickets because he came to Kansas City, and I was so stoked to go see Joel mm-hmm. Osteen, and uh, it just didn't work out. My my daughter had a theater rehearsal that I had to get her to, and, you, and so I I, prob- I missed the blessing. I'm, I'm I feel sure. like you've missed a lot of blessings, but I had a friend <laughs> who told me he so he kind of knows ish the Osteens, the Joel, and he talked, he talked about like they were at a, like he was in a, he was in a hotel, Osteen walked in and like these, this countless amount of people just came up to him and said, Joel, you've changed my life. Thank you so much. You've made such a difference. Why do you think so many people are saying that to Joel Osteen? Um, in light of, I've, it's sent, I get the sense that you weren't really genuinely wanting to go listen to Joel Osteen. <laughs> no, I did. I actually did. I mean, not as a fan, but as a as a student mm-hmm. of the of the phenomenon, well, okay. So, so why do you think uh, that phenomenon exists? Yeah, well, for the same reason that we're warned about um, leaders who tickle ears, right? Because it speaks right to um, the desire of human nature, which is to be um, somehow enlightened, right? To be satisfied and to seem bigger mm-hmm. than we are, right? I mean, God's put eternity in our hearts, and so. Everyone in some way is engaged in some kind of worship, and there's something about winsome way that he speaks. You can't deny his ability as a communicator. Um, it's not particularly my style, but I'd be silly to say, um, yeah, that's repugnant or what have you. You know, the way that he presents, the way that he speaks, and he speaks a message of self empowerment, of self help. And there's a reason why there's a huge section called self help, um, you know, down at the Barnes and Noble, and why there's hundred new titles in that genre um, every year. And it's not because there's nothing good in any of them or any, you know, um, that there's nothing true in any of them, but because it speaks to something in us that yearns to be more, yearns to be bigger. And he's speaking a message of um, acceptance, tolerance, you know, happiness without judgment, um, comfort without conviction, and that really appeals to us. It appeals to me, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Um, well, yeah. I'll see if they'll send you a book or two. Maybe that'll help. <clears throat> but if <laughs> yeah, you can't get one of Joel's books, you can get Supernatural Power for Everyday People, which is 
Is That's it out right. now? Is it a, it's in stores? Yeah, it came out last well, congratulations. week. Congratulations. Right. Do anything big for the release day? Um, Your daughters? So. That would have been good. I should have done that. That's probably why it's not doing very well, is I didn't like celebrate and claim my blessing. in the universe. I didn't sleep on the promise <laughs> in a particular sense. <laughs> okay, so you saw that clip? Um, I'm going to do that tonight. I'm going to put it in my pillow. I'm going to put it right in my pillow and sleep on it and see what well, happens in the morning. I did see okay, the clip. Okay, yeah. I do want to – let's talk about – let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. There's part of me – it's like I get the rhetorical device, like you're sleeping on – Jesus slept on a pillow. Like I get that. Everyone needs to do that. We all need to sleep. We need to have pillows. Right. Did he like it, saying that the like Jacob's ladder? He just called yeah. that like we just going to make this a connection to God, a ladder to heaven, and that didn't exist until you just you say those words and they it happens. Is that right? I, yeah, it's very try- word of faith, right? I mean, it's not anything. New. I'm trying to get yeah. the positive spin on that. No, well, why? Why do we have? I to don't do- know. <laughs> I don't know. John 17, um, maybe. I don't know. You know, what's interesting is he could have, I mean, the kernel that's there is a little rotten, but there's some truth in that. Um, I don't know if you have you know, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain fall. And that's this, Jesus. Right? So like, that's kind of a concept, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, exegetically, it's a mess. Theologically, it's atrocious. And I think even dangerous because it's borderline witchcraft. If, if I can witchcraft? Know, be about. Oh, come on. <laughs> it is. That's what word of faith is. I speak reality with my word. That's sorcery. I say these things. If I say the right words in the right ways, I'm going to make something happen. That's not Christianity. That's that's witchcraft. But like, what is uh, this like? I, mean, I, I actually believe that. I'm laughing, but I really believe that. Um, I mean, obviously, he's not praying to Satan or what have you. But it's the same concept. There's my tagline. Not anything. Jared Wilson biblical. says Stephen Furtick prays to the devil. There. It goes. <laughs> okay. It's going yeah, to... go for it. It'll sell some books, maybe. I don't. Okay. I don't know. Uh, but but again, so let me say again, I think what he's aiming at, um, if you know, if I'm affording him um, the benefit of the doubt in this regard, what he's aiming at is the idea that faith yeah, moves mountains, right? So I think he's he's he, he's misapplied that in a very unhelpful, if not dangerous way. But I can acknowledge, you know, maybe the point he's trying that, to make. Yeah, right? that's very charitable of you to do that. That was, I could. <laughs> I'll sleep well tonight. I you'll you'll sleep on that pillow tonight, and I think right. that was really that nice was of you to do that. I think, yeah, I'll put out a put fleece. The, put the fleece out. Which it's <laughs> my whole life. Everyone's like, let's put a fleece out. And I'm like, it's a sin to do that. Like that was the the point of the story. It's a right, sin yeah. to put a fleece out. Stop it. Anyway, yeah. you know it's not a That's sin. Right. That's right. Getting a copy of your new book. It's not a sin. I can guarantee that. You no, can it's sleep not. on that, Jared. <laughs> this is your your long-awaited yes, debut on the podcast. I feel like has been a success. Good. I All feel right. like we've we've bridged a gap between the Gospel Coalition and uh, just normal followers of Jesus. So thank you, thank you for making that happen. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just let that go. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>